This is the Empowered Conversations with Aline and Christina podcast. We are two educators of color that have been in the game for over 15 years. Thanks for joining us as we break down and speak on systems that were not built for Black, Indigenous people of color and the ways we address them head on. As we lean on each other in this work, it would be big for us if you took a moment to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to them. Also, follow us on Instagram at Aline and Christina, where we build community and support one another in this work. All right, let's get into the episode. Welcome back to the Empowered Conversations podcast with Aline and Christina, episode 43. I'm Aline, co-host of this podcast. I've been in education for 17 years as a former school counselor and high school assistant principal. I currently coach K-12 school leaders and revolutionizing the K-12 public school system. And I'm Christina, the other co-host of this podcast. This is my 18th year in education. I was a former high school English teacher, former assistant principal, co-principal, and site level admin program specialist. I'm currently a teacher coach at a K-12 school district and a K-12 co-school leadership coach with my homie and business partner, Aline, here in the Bay Area. Hey, y'all. Before we get into this episode, let's do our check-in. So, Christina, how have you been? I have been doing a lot of self-care and reflection this past weekend. So we are recording this on a Monday. And uh, just in short, in the school district where I am a coach, I'm a coach in Oakland Unified School District. And last week, we had a school shooting that resulted in six people um, getting shot at at a high school school site. I believe two were students and four were uh, staff members. And the drama from my understanding is still being investigated and it's, first of all, it's, hard, it's just heartbreaking and horrifying, mm-hmm. right? Because it's like, yeah. one would hope that a school is student and staff, um, a, a safe haven for both student and staff. And I, you know, I was actually discussing this with my, the coaching department in our district. Like, for me, school shootings have always, of course, affected me. Like, it Mm -hmm. it made me scared for my safety, as well as, you know, the student's safety and just overall community. It made me sad that things like this could happen. Mm -hmm. But real talk, this experience... I don't even want to say it was too close to home because it is home. <laughs> it happened in my home. It, it happened in the city that I live in. It happy, happened in the city that I work in. Yes, it's not 
my school site. And, but one of my teacher mentees works at one of the school sites because there are three school sites on that one campus. Thankfully, you know, none of her students were directly affected, but it's still, I mean, at, let me rephrase that. None of her students witnessed what happened directly, but it, it directly affected them. Right, right. Uh, so yeah, one, this happened in, in, in my own backyard, and if, if you could say so. I mean, that, and I am a parent now. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this just hits on a whole different level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Celine, <laughs> how have you been? You know, I mean, I feel like the same, like doing a lot of processing, reflecting, self-care, because like, I mean, there's a lot of things since we, you and I, you know, obviously have been talking a lot and checking in with each other since the shooting occurred. And yeah, like for me, I don't work in that, in the district anymore. And I don't live in the East Bay anymore, but it's still hits me in the same way because I think about the work that we're doing like one as administrators right former administrators but also just coaching school administrators and thinking like this is this could have it could have been their school this could happen anywhere um and unfortunately Oakland is being you know really impacted by so many school shootings and just gun violence in general in the communities near schools that I really I've been thinking a lot about the staff and the communities within the schools that have experienced this or even just in Oakland and what this means for them as their their place of learning right and their place of work and just the how it really shakes up a lot, not just, you know, the curriculum, but really like personally, like what it feels like to get up to go to school, Um, what it's going to take for the school to reopen and repair a lot of the feelings that have emerged since the school shooting. And, you know, I am happy that there are community organizations that are supporting the healing of, you know, families and students within that and staff of the school site and surrounding school sites and seeing what they've been posting and the work that they've been doing, because it it is going to take a community effort to really build back. And um, I don't want to say rise up, but, you know, like to start over. Um, I don't know. So I've just, I've just been thinking a lot about that. So I've been kind of in my feelings and spending a lot of time with my little one, because again, it does hit differently as a parent. Um, Really just thinking about like keeping a lot of people in my hearts, really. That's what I've been doing. Yeah. Yeah. For like, definitely for this week, because as I've mentioned before, um, in addition to coaching administrators with Aline, um, my nine to five, I, I work for a school district, I work for Oakland. And um, I coach teachers, mm-hmm. and 
the majority of my coaching sessions are scheduled on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And I only had one coaching session on Thursday. I obviously canceled that one because mm -hmm. um, the shooting happened on Wednesday and the teacher who works on that campus, her coaching session was on Thursday. So I wanted to give her some space and her, give her time to recover. And this week, my, cause I like to plan my coaching sessions a week ahead of time, but now it's like, I'm putting that on pause and so that I could just be a shoulder to lean on for yeah. all, all my uh, teacher mentees this week. Cause there's no way that you could just go back to like, okay, like, let's talk about your instructional practices. Yeah. Right. And it, it's, it's kind of like the same expectation too. Like when something horrific happens that affects your students, like you just can't go either not talk about it or to mm -hmm. just like, do a quick check-in to just say that you did a check-in and then go like, okay, but um, business as usual, we're gonna get back to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this week for sure, it's just like, hey, how the heck are you doing? Mm -hmm. What's on the top of your mind? And, you know, so far I only had two, um, well, today's Monday. So I only had two um, coaching sessions today so far. And a lot of it was like, I know that's on the other side of the city, but it, it, it's, I'm still scared. I'm now paranoid. And now it's making me reflect on what I don't know. And these are new teachers. So they're just like, I was here last year, but now that I think about it, I don't remember doing any type of drills. Like we didn't even do an earthquake drill or mm -hmm. um, an earthquake drill or a fire drill. And like, like I wouldn't know what to do. Like, what do we do if, if there's a, a person on camp, you know, a lockdown? I, I don't know. I've never experienced that before. And so yeah. Because my mentees knew that I was a former administrator in this district and in the Bay Area, they, they just started asking me questions like, well, what are the expectations? How often is it, is it supposed to happen? Um, so it, was, it wasn't exactly how I expected it to be. Mm -hmm. um, it was, I thought we were just going to check in on just like their overall yeah. mental state but then no absolutely I mean it, it did open up a whole can of worms but it's I'm like these are perfect questions like I'm actually gonna I was typing up those questions for them mm -hmm. and I'm like I'm going to type this up and if you feel empowered or if you have a relationship with a veteran teacher or shoot if you feel like you, you feel comfortable with your direct supervisor. Like these are legitimate questions. Yeah. 
Mm -hmm. Right? Like definitely ask these questions. But I was like, but I was like, I have a feeling that you're going to get some type of a, um, if, if you don't have a staff meeting this week, I, I have a feeling you're, you guys are gonna have an emergency staff meeting. Or if you read um, the weekly um, memo to staff, right? That, that admin usually sends. I was like, take a peek at that first. I was like, before you send all those emails. <laughs> but if you if, give it a couple of days, if you're not hearing anything, then please advocate for yourself because this is your life. This is your well-being here. So. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to learn from those situations and a lot to reflect upon and a lot to think about. And it's still ongoing. We know that. And I just mm -hmm. hope that, you know, the the school community is able to come back in a safe and intentional way and that the schools surrounding and in the district can um, get the support that they need to put the things in order to, you know, to really keep themselves safe and take care of themselves for sure. So this, this episode, we have a guest and, um, it's actually, you know, it doesn't fully connect, but in some ways it does because this guest talks about their experience, their journey, and also um, their process for running for school board. Mm -hmm. And it's just another way for us to think about different leadership positions that we can hold and should hold in order to make those changes that we desire in our schools, um, including a lot of the conversations that um, talk about safety and drills and just in general, you know, the intentionality behind what we talk about with our school students and with our staff. Um, there are some audio issues in the beginning, but I think what a lot of what is being said is important. So if you can get through the audio, you know, listen to the whole episode and I think you're going to take away a lot from it. So let's get into it. I'm really excited to introduce Abby Karens, who has been a public, ed public educational leader in the Bay Area since 2004. She has been a teacher leader, a district level literacy coach and coordinator, and an administrator at San Leandro High School and most recently serves as the Director of State and Federal Compliance for Newark Unified School District. But I have, I was able to closely work with Abby during the 2017-18 school year. So at that time, we were working at the same Bay Area K-12 school district. I was a co-principal and she was a district level literacy coach. I tapped into Abby because we needed to train one of our new reading support class teachers. <sighs> Abby and I <laughs> were on the same page in terms of how we viewed reading support classes, meaning that it should not be a permanent elective course. It should be a temporary stop. Therefore, her training included curriculum and lesson planning daily instructional practices, 
classroom processes and protocols and student and teacher reading, reading goal setting and monitoring. Since then, Abby and I, we left the district, but a few years later, Abby and I crossed paths when I applied for an assistant principal position at her school site where she was a part of the admin team. Then a few years later, thanks to social media, we crossed paths again um, because I noticed that Abby is currently a San Leandro Unified School District Board Area 2 candidate. So with that said, Abby Karens, hi, Abby. I'm so happy to be here, Macalino. You are amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it has been many years, and this is the beautiful world of education we live in. Our lives are woven together in unforeseeable ways, but we are always connected because our work is the work of the heart, and we are always going to be coming back to it. Now, I'm, I'm so excited to have Abby here, and you guys can't see it, but like she and I, even though we worked together for just one year, that it, it was a very interesting experience. And that's, that, that's all we could share. So it's kind of like some inside jokes stuff that we, we can't share because of confidentiality. <laughs> but boy, was it an experience. <laughs> but, so yeah. Abby, before you tell us about what you are currently up to right now, please share your educational journey. You can go as far back as you want, but go ahead. It, it, it's all on you. All right. So I was thinking about this um, and there's always different parts of your story that you want to emphasize. And I think the part of my story that I'm leaning into more these days is the part of my story about like why public education didn't work for me. Like I went to a large comprehensive high school and um, had, a, had a bad experience. I had a really challenging experience in my freshman year um, because I was facing uh, prejudice and hate speech around being bisexual. So I think being queer, and I didn't even really identify like out in any kind of out way, but I was noticed by the community and the dominant culture there as being other, and people would write on my locker, die dyke. So that happened. <laughs> and it can, I mean, it still happens and it's happened for a long time. And I just didn't feel safe. I never actually even told my parents that was why I wanted to leave the high school. Um, so I eventually did find a small high school um, in Providence. I, I grew up in Rhode Island and it was a, an alternative school and 100 kids in the school um, founded on a philosophy that we now is more commonplace, but was seen as pretty radical and progressive at the time. Um, no grades, uh, small Socratic style seminar classes, uh, defense. We had to do public defense of our work in our 10th grade year and our 12th grade year to graduate. Um, but more than that, it was like a place for kids who were felt othered in like their regular schools. Um, so it was like the principal was out, my English teacher was out, like there was just lots of queer kids on the full spectrum of whatever that means. <laughs> um, and it just was it was one of the safest places I've, I've seen for, um, you know, that I've been a part of in terms of inclusion. Um, 
yeah, and I've, I still have some great friends and, and connections from that experience. So I think that just like, even though it was a safe space, I have to add, like the journey was not like sort of concluded at that point. Like I found my people and I did great, period, end of story. Like nothing's that straightforward. <laughs> so I, I ended up actually dropping out of that school even as like loving and as safe as I felt. I still didn't have a sense of um, what my future was going to look like. The education, the things I was learning were really important. We had really great classes and excellent teachers, but it didn't, I couldn't cast forward, like what is the next five years of my life going to look like? So as a junior, I actually dropped out. And I dropped out for about like six months, um, became a, uh, a waitress in a little greasy spoon restaurant um, where the owner would make me go up to his office alone to get my envelope of pay. Um, it was, yeah, so it just, in that experience, so there were people I talked to, like the shorter chef, who was really helpful and gave me more life perspective about what kinds of choices I wanted to have, even though I couldn't see them. I wanted a broader view of the world than what was sort of in front of me at that time. So um, went back to school, um, got all my credits done, graduated went on to college, um, ended up graduating from the New School for Social Research with a cultural studies um, degree and studied community-based organizing in public schools. So it was just like my way of feeling like kind of writing the missing piece for me, like that, that civic piece was so important. Like I think had I had more of like a meaningful connection to like civic engagement, maybe I wouldn't have felt so, um, disconnected from my adult self, <laughs> who I wanted to become. Um, so that, that was a really transformational experience, like um, doing that, that CBO work um, in the Lower East Side. And then I still was in denial about being a teacher or <laughs> working in education for a few years after that. Explored like bartending and having a good time in New York City and then came out to um, Oakland and worked at the Coalition of Essential Schools. Um, and then it was a, an admin assistant because they had gotten some fat money from Gates. It was like 5 million at the time, 2003, and um, worked with them for um, two years. And then I got up the courage to actually be, um, be a teacher and went to Brown and got my MAT. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful for that too. So many, there's a lot of stories in there too. And then I, I came back to Oakland I worked at Oakland School for the Arts um, and then kind of um, left there for some reasons I'm happy to talk about and then worked a short time at Envision Academy and then went into coaching because I just started to feel like, all right, we have instruction can make some changes. We can do stuff in the classroom, but it's like, and this is like what I really learned at Oakland School for the Arts, if we don't have a system through which we're, we're taking care of the kids who are showing up multiple years behind, then we're not really, we're just kind of moving things along. Like, so that's where I was like, I want to be part of more of a system level investigation of like using data, doing inquiry cycles, making systems look at the results in really critical ways. Um, and that's what I did through this organization called Partners in School Innovation. So we, that was at the time at Race to the Top Dollars were in in effect, um, around uh, 2000, God, no, that was 2011, 2012, maybe. 
and then um, worked in San Francisco in the Mission Zone in Hunters Point, and then worked in San Jose in a district called Franklin McKinley School District, and then um, didn't like being a consultant anymore. <laughs> it was a lot to learn. It was really good exposure. I've got a huge education. Um, but I wanted to be part of a community again. And that's when I went back, uh, worked in Oakland uh, Unified School District as a literacy coordinator and launched their um, expeditionary learning curriculum adoption process that um, luckily is still around and expanding. That makes me so happy that something we did is actually six. <laughs> uh, and then after that, I got the courage to be a school leader and was an assistant principal for a short time during distance learning. And then really found um, I have a skill set around data. I have a skill set around strategic planning and community engagement. And um, yeah, my friend called me over to be a director of special projects, which is really their Title One, Title Three funds, the LCAP, um, all their all the local um, control funding formula stuff. So yeah, it's been a journey. I'm so every day I feel so grateful. I mean, it's funny how these things not. You don't know where you're headed. <laughs> and sometimes you look back and you're like, oh, the pieces actually kind of fit. <laughs> so I've, I, I do feel like my journey has been often um, for the assistance of some key mentors and um, people who have made me realize um, and, and with some grace, like the things that I didn't know, like some real big awakenings in my own like privilege and advantage and, and um, blindness to some things. And I think, I just think it's important to say that as like a white woman, uh, you know, that where I've gotten to has often been because I have um, had a lot of colleagues who have assisted me in like being and staying in an anti-racist space. Um, and it's not, you know, and that's not like a journey that stops, right? That's a journey that keeps going. It's a journey where you have to like always look at yourself and wonder and, and be critical and, and lean into like the kindness of, of loving friends who are like, yeah, you got a little bit of that privileged black built up in your teeth. But yeah, I'm happy to be where I am and, and really happy to be sharing it and being invited to share it by you all. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing like the entire journey that you've gone through, because I think, you know, Christina and I also learned a lot from the different districts that we worked at and different areas that we've worked in and find so much value and seeing how different systems work, how different systems, you know, compare to one another. What is one thing that, you know, kind of comes to mind when you think about the different schools and areas that you've worked at that still kind of comes to mind for you and the work that you do today? We, I think everyone would agree that we live in like a very polarizing times or dichotomous times, right? So I think that also shows up in like leadership styles and district sort of um, leadership styles. So, um, so for example, like a place like Oakland is really beautifully collaborative, right? Like people really want to move forward together often. Um, I mean, I know some people would say, wait, what happened with all that school closure stuff did not feel collaborative, but I think sitting in the district office and, and trying to be have a sense of urgency. Sometimes it was frustrating because people really did want to work, side, you know, shoulder to shoulder, side by side, check in with everybody, make sure it was all good before we made moves. And so the, the other side of that, the other like 
um, pole of that is like, you know, that top down leader that's moving quickly, make, you know, kind of pushing things through, getting things done, but kind of not checking to see if people are following along and sort of regardless of what, whether there's readiness, they're like, let's go. So I think there's like, it's got to be both. Like, I think especially when you're talking about like kids in classes today are not getting what they need. We can't just sort of be collaborative and wait for people buy-in. And you can't just bulldoze, <laughs> you know? So I think it's like, I think that's the thing I've noticed that districts tend to have a one dominant style or the other. And mm-hmm. um, I think it's important to know what that dominant style is and sort of be thoughtfully counterbalancing it yeah. um, as a leader, you know? asking for more input if it seems like people just all they want to do is move fast yeah. um, or, or vice versa like let's move faster like these children only get third grade once mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah thank you for sharing that now Abby I mean when we worked together for that one year I mean we were just always so busy and I I never really got to talk to you on a personal level so as you were sharing your journey like my mouth was kind of like (laughs) yeah (laughs) I saw that (laughs) like dang okay so yeah I know Aline already thanked you but thank you for thank you for being so open and authentic I mean I wow thank you that it's I'm sorry you had to go through that um, but it, I mean, you are just showing like the, the resilience that you have that it's freaking awesome. And, um, you know, I know I already mentioned this in the, your introduction, but, you know, I, I know with your new position, you said that, um, you were uh, sought out because they know that you handle data really well. Mm-hmm. And that, that's facts because that was like the number one thing that I remember you about was that when we were training this teacher, we were just like, okay, like you need to set goals with your students. You need to teach the students how to monitor their goals. What data will you be collecting as a teacher and how will you share that with your students. So that way they, they know that they're, they're improving their reading. And so, I mean, that's like data all around, like that's data for the teacher, that's data for the students. I mean, it's accountability and oh my goodness. I mean, that's what I remember um, specifically working with you, Abby. And, you know, if, cause I was a former reading support teacher as well. And data is just, it, it's huge. I mean, we should always use data no matter what classes we have, but specifically in classes like support, reading support, math support, EL classes, like it, we really need to utilize the data because that should only be a temporary spot, mm-hmm. not a permanent yeah. program for, for our, for our um, K-12 students. So this is extremely relevant now. So the school department I'm in Newark right now is very sweet in the sense of it's like connectedness. 
Like people who live there have lived there for generations. There's a deep pride in the city and the and the um and um and the schools. The and <laughs> when you ask people like how are kids doing, it's like it's all anecdotal. Like a lot of times it's and and I think that's just because it's very hard to get data that's um disaggregated. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. So all you can see is this general trend. It doesn't really tell any stories. And so even in the, re- hey, babe, to, to restart, I just think that it's someone at the Ritu in San Francisco once said to me, it's a, data is useless unless you can have it tell a story or you, you, know, you can tell the story behind the data. Mm-hmm. And so like we know things sort of generally, but we don't know like why is the data what it is and what are the more subtle differences underneath that? Um, it's, it's, it's hard. It takes a long time to get that information. It takes a, it takes a lot of skill set to get that data. And it's really frustrating the last couple of years because the California dashboard has been gone. Um, so we really have no, and, and then it's like, oh, LEAs get to decide what is the data set that they want to which again is what was the administration like is this accurate um the lpac was given like remotely so how good Mm -hmm. are those results so we're just in like a weird time with data currently but um what i noticed is smaller districts just don't have the muscle to look at data in the way that ousd can like if you go to ousdata.org or whatever that website is your mind will be blown the public data that's available there and i recommend all the listeners go and check it out because they use the tableau platform it is incredible the things that you can how you can slice and dice it and look but a smaller districts don't have that that skill set and the stuff that's provided by the state while it's getting better is just not that good um and there's like you said Magdalena, like the the cross-section it's the cross-section of information that's important and so what you get usually from the state dashboards is like here's your english learner data separately from your special education data separately from your you know foster youth data or attendance data and it's, it's if you wanted to put a profile together for students it would take a really long time of sorting that through checking across um they are a lot of parents just understanding what is it that I'm, you know, what is the thing that's being measured mm-hmm. and what are the, the, what are these numbers mean? <laughs> and how does this compare to previous year, the same kid over time, you know, and that's what they're interested in. It's funny, the state doesn't do this, but they want to see the cohort matches. Parents want to see, all right, so is this third grader, how are they doing now in sixth grade? Mm-hmm. You know, what does that arc look like? But most of our data sets from the state anyway are year over year. And to do that matching, to say are the contributions we're, act- we're making to this individual, on the individual level, actually making a change. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'd love to see us go more in that direction. I want to hear more just about what you're up to now, especially um, especially like with your your decision to run for school board. Um, and what you do with the data and how, how, like you just mentioned, like really wanting to move in a direction where parents 
can understand and use the data to see how their school systems are measuring up when sending their kids there or trusting that their kids are meeting the standards that they expect from them. So, but the one thing that you said earlier about your educational journey, journey, you said that you were at a place where people felt othered, especially yourself, like you were feeling othered. And so how did, how did that experience inform kind of how you approach the work now, especially when we think about what you're doing for a school board, what you're working on in the district and how educational justice plays a role in that. So twofold, like it's a bit, it's a loaded question. So like your experience of feeling others, right? And like, how does that inform your work? But also just like what you're doing now, the decisions around school board, because I'm so interested in that. Like, tell us more about that. Yeah, I, I mean, some, I do think, well, just relating to the idea of like, you know, othering or um, uh, decentering or like marginalizing people. I think that like data can be a way to break, break make visible people that are invisible or um, sometimes they're visible, but their voices in the decision-making spaces um are dominant right and so sometimes data brings those voices into a room that like uh, but data can data can got a lot of different ways but if you're thoughtfully using it be like okay we know that the dominant narrative right now is blank let's actually challenge ourselves to find out is that actually true rather than finding data that confirms it if you start looking at data with a confirmation bias at hand, then you are just going to prove, you know, you can make data tell you yeah, you were right to begin with, you know, and I think our job is to be like, are we right or what, what are we missing? What other stories mm -hmm. or, you know, successes even that are we missing because we're coming to this with a bias that are, we already know what the data is going to tell us, right? Yeah. Um, so I like to do like, especially with parents, like um, success stories, like, okay, here's the story. We know we have a problem with, you know, kids reclassifying and turning into alcohol. What's the story of the kid who is, or some group of kids who don't, who defy that, that like a happenstance or something that just happened by chance to that kid. But actually have it be a part of a system, like an intentional institutionalized system. Um, and like that's our power as leaders and leaders and the different levels of the system is being able to lift those up and be like, all right, let's like make this not like a roll of the dice anymore. <laughs> um, and so that's what I, I think like to link now to school board, I think that does, I feel like those people who sit in decision-making spaces um, sometimes don't have enough knowledge about the application of policy or funds and yeah. have good intentions and start making choices that don't actually roll to the students that need the most. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, we can get to ask questions like, all right, so we're gonna, we're gonna do some um, multilingual um, education, great. Like, what, is it, what does it look like to do integrated ELD in a biology classroom at the high school? Like, I want to see it. Like, yeah. <laughs> show it to me. 
And I want to ask those questions in a way that's supportive. I don't like, I don't think it's about calling people out, but it, it is about um, like asking for the, the evidence, right? Mm -hmm. So I think about that a lot. And I, I think um, that I'll just share some statistics about like who the school board members tend to be. Um, so there's a really great website called Education Justice. Um, and it's uh, uh, two women run this organization and their whole purpose is to recruit a, a broader diverse and representative field of people to be school board members. I didn't work with them, but I found out about it after and I was like, yes, this is righteous. Like they were like, uh, have stats on their homepage that show like one in every five political positions in the US is a school board position. That's 90,000 positions. <laughs> wow. um, and that the average age for in those positions is 65 years old. So mostly retired folks because it's yeah. an average. <laughs> and then, um, and mostly white, it's like 83% white or something like that. So um, I do think this is like a call to action that like, if we want more representation and to like not have this kind of psycho dialogue around CRT, or, you know, these fear, right? Like this kind of scary um, polarization showing up around masks and culturally responsive education and textbooks and yada, yada, yada. Like people need to actually run. Um, and, uh, but it's not easy. Like, I think, I think that's also something I don't want listeners to know is like running, just putting like your little blurb in the like mm -hmm. ballot thing that says like, here's, I'm Abby Kearns and this is what I'm about in your voter guide cost nine hundred dollars yeah yeah <laughs> it's 250 words i know like, it it's yeah it's wild to me wild. i'm like um so we need and then so you know supporting and encouraging and being side by side with someone who like you were saying you know you might be interested in running and <laughs> yeah but like it's it's that network of like people leaning into each other to be like i'm gonna help you figure this out i did it before you know, like sister, let's, I'm gonna pull you. We're gonna go together. <laughs> and a lot of people have done that for me in this race. So I've been so thankful. Actually, a um, young man named James Aguilar, who's the president of the San Andrew School Board, he's like a first year teacher and is like a like a badass. Uh, wow, <laughs> sorry, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, and he's like, you need to go. You need to run. You need to do this. Um, so he's been like actually one of my bigger, biggest mentors. So it's been an awesome experience. That's amazing. And it's just so, it's, <laughs> it's, it's motivational to hear that. And I, I do, I mean, I agree. I think that more educators really need to think about, um, or even just like those in our circles, like really think about running for these types of positions because I think we've all seen it or even in the districts that we work for it's just we're always questioning like what does the school board actually know about what we do on our campuses and what we experience on a daily basis and mm -hmm. you know not all of us can show up to a board meeting or even understand mm -hmm. the rules around being at a board meeting I mean right I'm fortunate enough and I know Christina like we're we're in a, a space where we know and understand what that means and how to apply to be a speaker and like you know, how much time you have, but not everyone does. And so I just think mm -hmm. that when we have more 
educators that are seeking educational justice run for positions on school boards. We're going to start seeing the changes that we've been asking for, or really at least question districts about what they're actually doing um, mm -hmm. and, and showing us the evidence, like you mentioned, because I think that's, yeah. that's, that's key. It's like, show me how this is working. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like the processes, like while they're intended to be democratic and transparent, we are experienced as colonialists. So it takes a lot of like, I don't know, uh, backup, confidence, reassurance, like yeah. to just persevere through some of these, the, the things that I think a lot of people would find to be just culturally like ignorant, mm -hmm. um, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I don't know what it would look like to revolutionize the way we hold board meetings, but like it's it's pretty, it's you know, the language of policy and the lang and the like the protocols of you know and procedures for boards are just they're made by people who want to keep their power. Yeah. So we got to remember that. <laughs> yeah, it's another system that was not built for us, for sure. Yeah, yeah. It, um, thank you for sharing that data. Uh, when As you were sharing that data, it just made me reflect on like all the districts that I worked for. And like, I would say one district out of the seven, the, major the majority of the students were black and brown. But I, I clearly remember that the school board was predominantly elderly white men. And then I remember when I worked at San Lorenzo for one year and that year they did like a whole bunch of pink slips and like they were budget cutting like crazy. So a whole bunch of us went, the, the teachers union went to the school board and mm -hmm. Ali, do you remember one of the school board members? It was like an elderly white man. He was like he was like asleep falling asleep yeah because it was a long board meeting <laughs> <laughs> but it was I was I didn't stay super late I was there for like the first couple of hours and he was already sleeping and um <laughs> I just remember the teachers union they were just tearing that up that he was like falling asleep because I'm once again there was a huge budget cut so they were going to lay off like all um uh, probe one and probe two. So it was, it was huge. Yeah. Abby, is there anything else you want to share with us or the listeners about just your experience with this, you know, running for school board or just what like prompted you to say like, I'm going to do this. Like, mm -hmm. I, I just, you know, you see things in systems across. So I'm not targeting family under for this but you see things and you say yeah that's that's not right the way it's going you know and maybe you try to change it within your sphere of influence or whatever your scope of power is um but like I do feel like it's important for someone to be on the board that understands and has like walked in that space mm -hmm. and like I hope to continue being like checking in and be like we did this thing like what's it feel like what's happening for real for real like because I think there's like just a hope sometimes that it gets executed or carried out in a way that as it was intended and you know 
with love in our hearts, we can sort of miss the mark. And, and we've got to be like, we have a lot of money right now. And I'm worried that, that we're not going to spend it. Like, and mm-hmm. we're not going to be looking for those really transformational shifts like we could be making right now. Mm-hmm. And we mm-hmm. need to make because we've exaggerated like the, like the, 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 the canyon between like, you know, student success and student mental health needs. Like it is our um, disparity is worse than ever before. And so like, let's be bold, like let's make moves, like let's do things with these funds that really change the landscape. And I'm, I'm just really, I don't want us to do a little bit of tweaking here and there. I want us to actually be transformational in how the board makes decisions of what we do. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I just get fired up about that feeling. Mm-hmm. And also just, there are a couple other folks on the board that I feel like feel similarly. So I know that if there's more voices saying things like that, like we might be able to move the group um, yeah. to be more bold. Um, yeah. Um, and I just think I, my heart is always like thinking on to English learners and to like students who are like at risk of dropping out like I was. Like we have to be able to like, English learners in Stanley under is like a quarter of our students and like they represent um, like only 36% of them are graduating um, like A to G ready so I just it's like what why you know brilliant bilingual students who think in two languages are just like how can that can't be like Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean it just doesn't make sense to me because the, the skill set that bilingual youth bring to education and academics and collaboration and critical thinking and um, problem solving is, I think, superior than me, us monolinguals. <laughs> so I just, I don't understand how it is that, that we can't be better. So yeah. I get fired up about that. <laughs> no, I love that fire. That's, that's like speaking exactly um, our language. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, and then I mean, like, I also feel like um, we're having some, another thing to think about for other listeners would be like, the function of state influences on local boards. So there's that, it's kind of in, the, in my race too, we've got a really powerful um, person behind my opponent who's like, kind of pushing, uh, you know, supporting the opponent. And, and I just wonder about like, okay, what is that? like how do local school districts stay local and not sort of find themselves like another sort of part of a bigger political kind of endeavor, right? Um, so, yeah, I just really appreciate the time, ladies. This is like, I also appreciate the two of you like um, taking your stories and your skills and like creating a space to, uh, you know, bring new new voices out into the wild wilderness of podcasting <laughs> this is so fun I'm like this is I don't know it's like a creative uh and like activist and like it's such a beautiful thing so I just I just want to say thank you for even thinking of me and for just doing this it's like work on top of work y'all like young moms mm-hmm. like doing equity work and like you know creating a space for other people to come and bring their voice like beautiful thank you oh thank you yeah thank you and by the way listeners like all three of us have babies 
Young children, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but Abby, thank you so much for joining us. Like you just, as I said, I only worked with you for that one year, but that that one year it was short but significant. And so that was like one of my hardest years as an educator. And I mean, I was basically like thrown into that um, position. And I, you know, I wanted to make sure that I tapped into my resources and boy, you are a gem. So thank you so, so, so much. And, um, you know, you're a busy bee. I mean, you're, you're a district director now. You're about to, you're running for a board member position. You got yourself a three-year-old. So with all that stuff going on, <laughs> with all that stuff going on, like what do you do for self-care? What does Abby do? Mm -hmm. Self-care. I try to make sure Honestly, like my happiness comes from my family, like also being at peace and like connecting with each other. So honestly, like my self-care right now is going to be sitting down to eat this beautiful meal my husband just made, doing yeah. some kind of yoga, but honestly, just sitting down and having a meal and saying gratitude to each other every day is, is healing. So, well, we want you to enjoy that meal. And the last question for you that we already kind of talked about is just tell us what that song is that gets you up the hill, the song oh, yeah. that gets you motivated, that gets you pumped up, especially in those moments where you need that extra push. So I'm going to change my answer from what I thought about earlier, because right now Una and I are deep in the frozen too. So it's going to be into the unknown. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I like yes. It. Lately, we've been singing that at the top of our lungs in the car. <laughs> Which is also a form of self-care, getting that, you know, belting out some lyrics in our car for sure. Well, thank you so much, Abby. We appreciate you so much. Good luck on the race. And this was amazing. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you, Abby. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Alina Christina. Check out our content and engage in a conversation with us through the comments or DMs. Also, please help us grow and share this with your friends, colleagues, as well as post on your social media. We look forward to next time. Take it easy.